This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode features discussion of ancient sexuality, child murder, and pickles that some may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. Rome, 63 CE. Hadriana stumbled through the crowded streets, her little hand clutching her father's. He was smiling, watching as some men in funny hats and masks walked by. The twisted, grinning faces of the masks sent shivers up Hadriana's spine. But her father seemed to enjoy it. They joined the crowd, funneling into a massive building. They made their way up a mountain of packed seats until they found a spot of their own. What was this place? She turned her gaze to the center of the stadium, where two women in armor and helmets suddenly appeared. A man just outside of the ring clapped, and the two women began to attack one another with swords. Hadriana's father and the rest of the crowd cheered as the women slashed at each other, drawing blood. She wondered what kind of horrible occasion this was. How could people be so happy to see two women try to kill each other? Why was the crowd adorned in strange outfits and masks? To young Hadriana, the holiday of Saturnalia was a nightmare. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. Today is the 10th installment in our Dark Side of Holidays series. The holiday season may be seen as a time of celebration for many, but its saccharine exterior conceals many unpleasant truths. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. Today, our primary topic is Saturnalia, the ancient Roman winter festival. It was a time of merriment, very similar to the holiday season of the modern day. In fact, Saturnalia so resembles our modern holidays, and Christmas in particular, that it leads us to wonder if this wasn't the forebearer to the entire idea of a holiday. Many seasonal celebrations began as a religious observance and then morphed into a more general secular occasion. As we'll soon see, Saturnalia was no different. However, it also bears the distinction of having then morphed back into a religious festival. The emergence of Christianity in the first two centuries CE led to the co-opting of Saturnalia and the invention of Christmas as we know it. While there's nothing particularly dark about that, the Roman culture that the holiday grew out of featured many customs that are disturbing to our modern-day sensibilities. And even after the fall of the Roman Empire, the continued development of Christmas was marked by dark tales, including stories of human sacrifice and a saint who walked the earth encountering all kinds of grievous sin. But before we get into all that, we have to do a bit of ancient history deep dive. Bear with us as we travel through several layers of historical legend to arrive at the Roman holiday of Saturnalia. Saturnalia is named after the Roman god Saturn, who was the embodiment of abundance, wealth, and a full harvest. But the holiday's roots run even deeper, all the way back to ancient Babylon, and maybe even earlier, to early celebrations of the winter solstice. The solstice is the shortest day of the year before winter begins to diminish. It was a ritualistic observance for the earliest farmers. Celebrations surrounding the day may go back further than 10,000 years. Farmers saw the sun as a deity that gave and took away. It brought life to them and life to their crops. The cycle of the seasons was a divine process that had to be respected. For the majority of human history, life had been harsh, full of dwelling in caves and grappling with predators. Farming provided stability that humans had never had before. With this practice came the creation of walled cities. And with that, new legends began to emerge. According to author Mike Gascoigne, one of these legends centered around Nimrod, an ancient hunter king. He was mentioned in the Bible. In the book of Genesis, it says, He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Essentially, he represented the shift from hunter-gatherer living to settling in organized cities. He represented the effects that farming and therefore living by the patterns of the sun had on society. Whether or not Nimrod was a real person is impossible to know. 
but he bears similarities to an ancient Greek hero, Ninus. Ancient historian Diodorus claimed that Ninus was an Assyrian king that conquered much of the Middle East and parts of Asia, though no dates are given. He was another figure who represents the transition from tribal culture to larger civilization. According to Diodorus, the hero Ninus was married to Semiramis, an Assyrian queen. Semiramis may be a representation of the real-life ruler Samuramat, who led Assyria from 811 to 806 BCE. Diodorus and another Greek historian, Theseus, depicted Semiramis as an evil figure who stole power from Ninus and then, after years of rule, passed the kingdom on to her son, Ninus, a sort of reborn Ninus. Again, whether or not any of this actually happened is up for significant debate. Samuramat may very well have been an effective ruler, who was later depicted as evil simply because she was a woman who held power in a time when that was considered sacrilege. But what does all of this have to do with Saturnalia, and then, by extension, Christmas? Well, as we've said, Saturn was the god of the harvest. His wife, Opus, was the mother of the gods. Both figures contain echoes of the Nimrod, Ninus, Semiramis archetypes that were worshipped for centuries, even millennia. And all of them represented the transition from primitive hunter societies to more advanced farming, sun-following societies. The legends surrounding them often included a female figure, like Semiramis or Opus, who gave birth to the next king or the next god. These concepts would crystallize into the Roman festival of Saturnalia. Roman citizen Macrobius wrote extensively on Saturnalia. Much of our understanding of the holiday comes from him. According to his writings, it arose around 217 BCE out of multiple religious observances. These included a day honoring Saturn's wife, Opus, a day honoring the winter solstice, and a day honoring Saturn himself. That makes sense, as the suffix alia literally means a group. So Saturnalia was a group of Saturn-related observances that then became a week-long festival. What began as a single celebration on December 25th, the winter solstice on the ancient Roman calendar, grew into an event that lasted from December 17th through the 25th. A holiday that takes place on December 25th, honoring a life-bringing God and a divine mother? We can already see the seeds of Christmas taking shape. Although warrior kings like Ninus and Nimrod were a dark contrast to the later image of a peaceful Christ. But on a surface level, there was nothing particularly dark about Saturnalia. It was a time when, according to Macrobius, all things serious are barred. Absolutely no business of any kind was to take place during this celebration. That meant that everything from schools to the courts were closed. According to author Matt Salisbury, the Romans even refrained from declaring war during this time and would hold off on any executions. In the United States, holidays are fundamentally about taking time off from work. And we see that concept emerging in ancient times with Saturnalia. We can also see some of the same pitfalls. 
Caligula, emperor of Rome from 37 to 41 CE, tried to cut the holiday down from nine days to five. He was like a modern-day Scrooge, annoyed that he had to allow his subordinates time off. Roman historian Pliny the Younger was another famous Saturnalia curmudgeon. He built a soundproof room so that he could work through the raucous holiday without being disturbed. But the modern Christmas and general holiday comparisons didn't end with time off. It was also common for the Romans to decorate for the holiday using wreaths and greenery. This represented the coming of spring and the forthcoming harvest. They gifted each other sari candles, which represented the return of the sun and longer days. This is directly echoed in modern-day candlelight Christmas Eve services, in which Christians light candles to signify the entry of Christ into the world. Celebrants of Saturnalia would even greet each other by saying, Yo, 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 a sort of archaic version of Santa's ho, ho, ho. But when discussing ancient Rome, we must never forget that for all its glory, there was an equal amount of human rights abuses. According to author Mark Cartwright, as many as one in three people were slaves in ancient Rome. Slavery was thus an intrinsic part of Roman culture, and that extended into the celebration of Saturnalia. During the festival, slaves were briefly given their freedom, complete with special hats that signified this freed status. Though they were not allowed to simply leave their household for good, roles were reversed. The masters waited upon the slaves. But it's hard to imagine that this was truly enjoyable for the slaves. As writer Christy Harrison put it, they were participating in the charade of freedom. The next day, they went back to being enslaved. There were additional dark undercurrents to Saturnalia. No Roman festival would be complete without an animal sacrifice to the gods. Saturn in particular was often presented with a young pig. As we covered in last week's Hanukkah episode, this practice made both Greeks and Romans seem particularly evil to the ancient Jews. They saw pigs as unclean, and to use them as an offering to a god was especially outrageous. But on top of all this, Saturnalia had the potential to get even darker. For beyond slavery and animal sacrifice, Rome was also known for its gladiatorial bouts and its deadly political schemes. Saturnalia had its own special variations on both of these things. It was a time for presence and good cheer. But it was also a time for murder. Next, we discuss the Saturnalia gladiators and a holiday plot to overthrow the Senate. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Thank you so much for listening. 
We want to take this time to tell you that The Dark Side Of will be taking January 6th off for the holidays. We'll be back with a brand new episode on January 13th. In the meantime, we do have a special gift to share with you. While we're away, we'll be airing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. If you'd like to check out the most requested episodes from ParCast's other shows, subscribe to ParCast Presents to hear our best of 2019. From everyone here at ParCast, we'd like to wish you a happy holiday season. We're thankful for your support and look forward to bringing you even more unique and entertaining podcasts in the new year. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the story. Saturnalia, the ancient Roman winter festival, was a precursor to many modern holiday traditions. But it also featured some disturbing ancient practices. Roman Colosseums have been made famous by historically inaccurate Hollywood films, but they were every bit as gruesome as the stories suggest. Typically, they featured male warriors fighting to the death before roaring crowds of spectators. But on Saturnalia, they took on a different aesthetic. Author Matt Salisbury writes that it was common for female gladiators and dwarves to fight in the Colosseums throughout Saturnalia. This was an extension of the idea that all things serious should be barred. Just as masters served their slaves on Saturnalia, the supposedly weak were put into the arena. Author Joshua J. Mark writes that we know female gladiators existed from a handful of archaeological findings as well as ancient Roman texts that reference them. But evidence also shows that multiple emperors attempted to outlaw them. They were perceived as a threat to social order. If too many women chose a life in the arena, then there wouldn't be enough left to take husbands and sire children. But this speaks to how oppressive the Roman patriarchy was. Living the life of a wife and mother was, for some women, less appealing than the dangerous life of a gladiator. And the training was hell. Participants had to sign away their lives, agreeing to the possibility that they might be killed in any number of ways. Though the games themselves were not quite as deadly as Hollywood would suggest. Joshua J. Mark writes that it was expensive to replace a gladiator, and so the man presiding over the games usually allowed them to keep their life, even when they lost a fight. However, the Colosseums were also used to execute prisoners and featured an extreme amount of animal slaughter. They would seem a rather gruesome holiday tradition to a modern audience, and one Saturnalia activity was just as violent as the movies suggest— chariot racing. During the festival, there could be as many as 36 races a day in Rome. Professor of Ancient History Garrett G. Fagan writes that 200,000 people would show up to these races. The city was practically emptied. They looked on as competitors whipped their horses and each other. Everything was allowed, even pulling your opponent from their chariot. Fagan writes that the best seats were considered to be on the corners of the track, as that is where the most crashes occurred. This wasn't holiday NASCAR. Crashing your chariot almost certainly meant injury or death for the drivers and their horses. And chariot racing fans put modern-day football fans to shame. 
According to Fagan, fans poisoned the opponent's horses before a race, or in one instance, burnt down a city center because their favorite racer had been arrested. But despite the ferocity of the gladiatorial arena and the chariot races, these weren't even the most deadly aspects of Saturnalia. Because the holidays meant that everyone was distracted. Therefore, it was the ideal time to strike out at political opponents. In 63 BCE, Roman society was in a precarious place as rampant debt and unemployment led many to question the leadership of the Senate. The 63 BCE elections for the consulship were thus fairly heated. This was the two-person office that held the most power in Rome at the time. The consuls were essentially the Roman government executives in the time before Julius Caesar transformed Rome into a dictatorship. At opposing sides of the political spectrum were Cicero and Catiline. Cicero was famous for his ability to sway people with his speeches. Catiline was a heavily in-debt noble who tried to gain support by rallying other impoverished Romans. Most sources, such as Cicero and the Fall of the Roman Republic by English scholar James Lee Strachan Davidson, depict Catiline as a villain. It is suggested that he was a bloodthirsty soldier known for using his positions of power to take bribes. It seems his constant goal in life was to accrue more wealth, and yet he now found himself bankrupt. According to ancient history teacher Donald L. Wasson, Catiline had to go into even further debt just to run an effective campaign against Cicero for the 63 BCE consul election. It was money spent in vain, however, as Cicero easily won using his superior oratory skills. He was a watchdog, constantly making the Roman people aware of Catiline's underhanded dealings. By October of that same year, he had become aware that Catiline was plotting to overthrow him and the Senate. The coming weeks saw Cicero uncover evidence, including threatening letters written to senators and weapon stockpiles at the homes of Catiline's associates. Worst of all was the early December revelation that Catiline was amassing an army outside of Rome, while those loyal to him were planning to set fires and incite a revolt during Saturnalia. It was a dastardly plot that took advantage of holiday cheer. Catiline was like an ancient Roman Grinch, ready to ruin Saturnalia because he felt slighted at having lost the election. But Cicero's response was equally dastardly. In a controversial move, he had Catiline's allies in the city executed without a trial. He was afraid of what could happen if they were allowed to live into Saturnalia. This proved an effective strategy, as Catiline fled with his army and was ultimately killed in battle the following year. Cicero had saved not just Saturnalia, but the Republic. Say what you will about Christmas family dinner squabbles. At least they don't lead to the near destruction of our democracy. The Catiline plot was not the only time Saturnalia was used toward wicked political ends. In 211 CE, the psychopathic Roman emperor Caracalla sought to remove his brother Geta from his position as co-emperor. During the Saturnalia of 211 CE, 
he convinced his mother and brother to meet him in his apartments to make amends for past disagreements. However, when Caracalla arrived, he didn't come alone. He brought along several loyal soldiers and ordered them to stab Jeta to death while he was held in his mother's arms. Caracalla was now sole emperor of Rome. It was not a happy Saturnalia for his grieving mother. But this is where our discussion of ancient holiday traditions begins to separate from Saturnalia and the Romans. For it was around the 3rd century CE that Christianity began to take hold in the empire, and Saturnalia's days were numbered. After Jesus' death around 30 CE, his followers had been growing in number, spreading their beliefs throughout the Mediterranean. They preached that there was one God, that he had died for humanity's sins, and that believing in him meant eternal salvation. These beliefs ran counter to the polytheism of the Romans, who believed that their emperors were divine and that the common man had no claim to salvation. Many Christians were killed for their beliefs, often executed in Colosseums. It's possible that some of the Saturnalia celebrations of the 1st and 2nd centuries CE featured the killing of Christians. But by the 3rd century CE, there were enough Christian converts in Rome that the emperors had to try to accommodate them. One solution was the worship of Jesus as just another deity in the Roman pantheon. But that practice ran so counter to monotheistic belief that many Christians chose martyrdom over it. A lot of mudslinging began between the Christians and the pagans. Writer Spencer Anthony McDaniel notes that the mudslinging began with the pagan Romans. They portrayed Christianity as a barbaric religion from backwater Israel. They claimed that the Christians got together and had incestuous orgies, and that in order to become a Christian, you had to sacrifice a baby. Not the kind of thing that tends to come up at modern-day Sunday school, but to ancient Romans who had never heard of the religion, it seemed plausible. In retaliation, many Christians claimed that it was actually the Romans who were having barbaric orgies. But they were largely drawing on the writings of Livius, a Roman historian from the first century CE who wrote about the cult of Bacchus. This cult, according to Livius, engaged in nighttime worship that included killing and rape. That was actually a biased account that bore little truth in its own time, and it had nothing to do with the Romans of the 3rd century CE. We can be reasonably sure that this mudslinging was just that, as it was a tradition going back a long way in Roman discourse. McDaniel writes that many Roman historians were politically biased and used their writing to portray their political rivals in a negative light. He gives one particularly memorable example from Life of Tiberius, written by Roman biographer Suetonius. The biographer wanted to portray Tiberius poorly, and so he fabricated a story about how Tiberius had a swimming pool filled with toddlers who had been trained to perform fellatio on him and that he called them his fishes. Clearly, any claim of Roman sexual debauchery has to be taken with a grain of salt. And in actuality, the ancient Romans were somewhat sexually conservative. 
According to author Paul Crystal, Roman sexuality was defined by status and was entirely male-centric. Women were expected to produce children and derive no pleasure from sexual activity. Meanwhile, men were permitted to seek sexual gratification outside of their marriage bed, but there was a strict social structure that dictated how this should look. They could only have sex with those who were beneath them in the social structure, such as slaves or sex workers. They were even permitted to have sex with members of the same gender as long as they were doing the penetrating. A man who received during anal sex was considered feminine and inferior. With such a complex set of cultural taboos surrounding sex, the idea of ancient Saturnalia orgies seems unlikely. An orgy, by definition, would lack any social structure or any set rules. By 313 CE, this mudslinging had stopped. The Roman Emperor Constantine was converted to Christianity on his deathbed, and soon Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Pagan celebrations such as Saturnalia were eventually outlawed, replaced with the celebration of the birth of Christ. There is no one document or piece of archaeological evidence we can point to that suggests this led directly to the creation of Christmas. But there is an obvious connective tissue between the customs of Saturnalia and our modern holiday. Jesus and the Virgin Mary even served as adequate stand-ins for the likes of Saturn, Opus, and earlier figures like Ninus and Semiramis. Jesus' virgin birth and resurrection narrative suggests the waning and return of the sun during the winter solstice. This is not to suggest that Jesus was an invention of Roman Christians. Most historians agree that Jesus was a real person. However, it seems likely that the story of his birth was mythologized to make it easier to swallow for the pagan Romans, who were used to celebrating new life in December. The Bible contains no less than three different versions of Jesus' birth, and none of them mention that he was born on December 25th. In fact, the details, such as the presence of shepherds and Mary and Joseph's trip to Jerusalem for the census, suggest the story took place in the spring. However, December 25th was the winter solstice on the Roman calendar, and the general populace wasn't about to stop celebrating their favorite holiday. Lo and behold, ancient Christians were able to reveal that this ancient holiday just happened to be the birthday of their Lord and Savior. The Bible also doesn't command that Jesus' birthday should be celebrated or observed. This is in sharp contrast to instructions regarding Passover and Easter. Once again, there seems to be a certain connective tissue that places Christmas as the inheritor of certain Saturnalian traditions. And so, while we deck the halls and light candles this holiday season, we'll have to keep in mind that these festivities began in a much darker place. We can be grateful that deadly chariot races and assassination plots have been replaced with football games and family dinner. However, Christmas has its own dark past. As Christianity spread through Europe in the early centuries CE, various saints had to contend with even more barbaric pagan practices. Just as with the development of Saturnalia into Christmas, some of these dark traditions were co-opted into our modern holiday. 
And one of the saints who faced them was destined to become the very face of Christmas. Next, we'll learn the dark origins of Santa Claus. Now, back to the story. We've discussed Saturnalia, the ancient Roman winter solstice festival that was the darker precursor to many of our modern holiday traditions. But it doesn't explain where things like Christmas trees or Santa Claus come from. In order to get to the bottom of these holiday traditions, we have to go back to the early centuries CE, just as Saturnalia was falling out of favor and Christian saints were spreading the good word across Europe. There is no universally accepted origin for the Christmas tree, but one German legend tends to rise above the others as the most well-known. The story of St. Boniface and Thor's oak tells of an event on Christmas in 723 CE in which English priest and eventual saint Boniface was traveling with his companions through the snowy wilds of pagan Germany. They had heard of a horrific practice in which the locals sacrificed an infant at the foot of an oak tree. These trees were said to be sacred to the god Thor, and he would provide a bountiful spring to those who made sacrifices beneath them in the winter. We do have to point out that many of these tales from the early church villainize pagans in order to increase the glory of the Catholic heroes. There are no other accounts of this tale outside of the church. Though human sacrifice among ancient Germanic peoples is not unheard of, there is also no way to verify that it was truly taking place in this instance. But according to the story, Boniface and his companions did eventually arrive at the site of the oak and were shocked to find an infant sacrifice about to take place. Boniface, emboldened by his belief in God, trudged forward and used his simple wooden staff to deflect the blow from a sacrificial hammer. God protected him, and the hammer was shattered by his staff. He then turned to the pagan crowd, exclaiming, Hearken, sons of the forest, for this is the birth night of the Christ, the Son of the Almighty, the Savior of mankind. Fairer is he than Baldur the Beautiful, greater than Odin the Wise, kinder than Freya the Good. Since he has come, sacrifice is ended. The dark Thor on whom you have vainly called is dead. Deep in the shades of Nevelheim, he is lost forever. And now on this Christ night, you shall begin to live. This blood tree shall darken your land no more. In the name of the Lord, I will destroy it. He then took an axe and cut the oak down. This astonished the pagan onlookers, who expected that Thor would strike down any who damaged his sacred trees. According to the story, Boniface had shown that his god was the only true god. He then gestured to a nearby fir tree and commanded the pagans to bring trees such as this into their homes to remind them of this lesson. Thus, the Christmas tree was born. This Christmas, when you're putting presents under the tree, try not to imagine a wailing infant beneath the branches about to be sacrificed to Thor. German folklore such as this has informed modern Christmas celebrations just as much as Saturnalia did. 
This includes the most iconic Christmas figure of all, Santa Claus. But his origins are even darker. In 1907, writer Thomas Purcell suggested in an article for the San Francisco Daily Times that the original Santa was really Saturn himself. In Roman stories, he traveled the countryside with his scythe, reaping goodies for his followers. But that's more correlation than direct connection. Not to mention, we'd really rather not imagine a version of Santa that runs through fields with a sharp instrument. It's more likely that Santa's beginnings come from the stories of another Catholic saint, Saint Nicholas, born in what was ancient Greece around 270 CE. Many of his most famous tales are of indeterminate origin. The following story likely comes from Northern Europe. According to legend, there were three young children traveling on the road when they came across an inn. They went inside looking for a place to sleep for the night. They encountered a friendly innkeeper who offered to feed them and give them a warm bed. All three children were overjoyed. When the innkeeper served them stew, they didn't question its contents. But this was a grave error, for the innkeeper had poisoned the meal. When the children ate it, they fell to the floor dead. The cruel innkeeper took all of the valuables off their corpses. Then, truly evil, he chopped up their bodies and put them in a pickling barrel. He hid this in his cellar, and for seven years, no one was the wiser. But then, one day, St. Nicholas himself arrived at the same inn. As soon as he stepped foot inside, his deep connection with the Lord allowed him to sense that something was wrong. Journeying into the cellar, he was horrified to find the barrel of pickled children. He prayed to God to make this atrocity right. Lending power to St. Nicholas's hand, God resurrected all three boys. They marveled at their reconstituted bodies, embracing St. Nicholas. He thus became the patron saint of all children. This is also supposedly where the tradition of hiding a pickle or pickle ornament on your Christmas tree comes from. Merry Christmas! Rushing down into the cellar, the innkeeper was terrified to see his crimes had been brought to light. But rather than strike the innkeeper down, St. Nicholas chose to forgive him. He claimed that he wanted to show the innkeeper the same grace that Christ showed the human race. In some versions of the legend, the innkeeper becomes St. Nicholas's servant, Rupert. He carries around a bag of treats, not unlike a Christmas elf. It's an extremely dark turn of events to realize that Santa's connection with children and little helpers begins with the story of three murdered children. With so many Christmas traditions arising out of a reaction to paganism, or just general evildoing, it's surprising that it continues to be such a popular observance throughout the Christian world. But this wasn't always the case. In 1659, in the relatively new colony of Massachusetts, the Puritan government decided that the observance of Christmas was, in fact, blasphemy. They found no justification for it in the Bible and were aware of the pagan associations with the solstice, Christmas trees, and holidays in general. According to writer Heather Turgi, the Puritans believed that 
they for whom all days are holy can have no holiday. In other words, if you really believed in the salvation wrought by Christ, then you rejoiced every day and didn't need any special traditions to lighten your mood. To this end, all businesses were required to stay in operation on the 25th of December. Ironically, churches were shuttered and priests forced into silence. This was in stark contrast to the carefree days of Saturnalia. It was like a cross between Beaumont from Footloose and Sombertown from Santa Claus's Coming to Town, the worst possible society. The punishment for breaking these laws ranged from a five-shilling fine, about $20, to being thrown in jail. But the Puritans' control was challenged in the coming decades by an influx of immigrants from Italy, Germany, and the rest of Europe. Like the ancient Romans, they wouldn't let anyone get in the way of their holiday traditions. And as more colonies were formed and the United States came into being, this kind of religious authority gave way to a secular one. By 1870, Christmas was a national holiday. Considering that the holiday season, and Christmas in particular, are among some of our most cheerful festivities, it's ironic that they are mired in over two millennia's worth of conflict. From the political schemes of ancient Rome, to the culture wars of later Rome, to the pagan conflicts of early Europe and the strict laws of colonial Puritans, Christmas has come a long way. Though some might argue that the rampant commercialism discussed in our Black Friday episode means it wasn't worth it, there is clearly something primal, something deeply human about holidays in the wintertime. It could be that we are not that different from our ancestors of 10,000 years ago. We like to be reminded of the warmth of the sun even while we're in the midst of winter. But as we discussed, the solstice was about more than that. It was a reminder of how much humans have changed, how they had risen above their primitive nature, coming together to build cities. And in Rome, the Saturnalia was a similar reminder of how even amidst a strict class structure, all Romans were human. It was not impossible for a master to serve a slave or for the emperor to give his people a week off. For the Christians, winter became a reminder of how God himself loved them enough to come into the world. And as we learned last week, for the Jews celebrating Hanukkah around the same time, it became a reminder of how God would never abandon them. Whatever you believe, winter holidays can be a time to remind yourself of whatever it is that brings that figurative warmth into your life. Whether that's God, family, or a $200 off flat screen TV. And so, even though Saturnalia and ancient holiday traditions represent perhaps our darkest episode of this season, we think it also best speaks to why holidays are so important. We therefore wish all of our listeners a happy holiday and hope that we've ruined at least one tradition for you. Yo, 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 Saturnalia! We'll sacrifice a pig in your honor. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, gather round the fire as we terrify you with tales of the Krampus. 
You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like The Dark Side Of, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Paul Mahler. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Greg Castro, with writing assistance by Drew Cole, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Just a reminder that we'll be back with a new episode on January 13th. In the meantime, we'll be playing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season.